Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Ralph Moore and Myron Pierce on Practical Multiplication. Practical Multiplication highlights Exponential's core church multiplication frameworks with a focus on the everyday practical nature of how these concepts can help pastors and church planners make disciples and multiply churches. Now, let's join Ralph Moore and Myron Pierce. Hey, welcome everybody to Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Church Multiplication. My name is Ralph Moore. I am here with my really, really good partner in crime, Myron Pierce. Uh, God has just pulled us together and super blessing in my life to to know a guy who's right there on the front line and multiplying churches, digi churches around the world. Uh, so excited to be with him. We have as a guest today, Rob Wagner, who is the, the leader of the, the Kansas City Underground. One very cool thing about today is that Rob and Myron spent the day together just two days ago in a conference all day. And so it wasn't a conference, man. What, it wasn't a conference. It wasn't that boring. Hey, it was way better. Rob, Rob, Rob be making stuff up, man. <laughs> well, what was it? What was it? <laughs> I feel harassed and harangued. What, what well, you sound it? like an old white evangelical. Every time church leaders get together, it's a conference. <laughs> <laughs> I am an old white evangelical <laughs> trying to survive in this new world. So what was it? What did you guys do on Monday? <laughs> it was it was Rob, okay. Tell them what we did, Rob. Yeah. So um Kansas City Underground, four or five of our gang. And then um Daryl and Stephanie answer, they're amazing missionaries. Uh, in the inner city of Kansas City, and they lead a, um, a community that's called New Community, some of their gang. And then Myron and uh, Mission Church and every inner city, he brought four or five of his gang. And the Lord's um, pulling us together. And it's kind of this little triad that uh, we have a shared sense of calling and burden. And um, and we really want to get behind Daryl and Steph. Um that God's given them a vision for multiplying missionaries, micro churches, addressing injustices, starting micro businesses. And so we invited Myron up because their story of success with entrepreneurism is incredible. And so they're mentoring the Kansas city underground and Daryl and Steph. Um, and we're just, it was like, a, it really was like a sacred assembly. It was a, it was a crazy cool day. And at the end of the day, um, we were going for this prayer walk and Stephanie, we were about to turn around and go back. She's like, man, there's this, this building that the city's built and there's a slide in it. And we think it has her name on it. Can we go pray over there? 
And, uh, and we're past our time limit, but we're like, we got to file this lead. And we walk over there and one of Myron's guys puts his hand like on the door to look in and it's this, it's unlocked. So this is like a brand new building <laughs> and the front door <laughs> it just opened. and it was like, I'm not kidding. It was like the presence of God went Phew. and everyone kind of looked at each other. It's like the door is open. No man can shut the door that God has opened. And we went in and it got real. I mean, the prayer, there was some serious prophesying that went on. And uh, we think, we, you know, we think God's launching a new hub for hope dealers and micro churches right there. And here's the crazy thing, Ralph. We got out, got done praying. We're walking back. And I stop at the end of this corner and I look down the street and there's a dead body on the street. Wow. It, the shooting took place while we were praying. So talk about wow. overt spiritual warfare, underscoring why we're there. And we're like, this is not, first of all, our hearts are broken and my stomach's in a knot. And second of all, it's like, no, we're not going to be intimidated. Yeah. That's why we're here. And, it, and so it was no, two I, adults and a child, man. And wow. so, so Monday, it's one of those days it's hard to describe, man. It wasn't a conference, that's for sure. You know, it's amazing to me, um, in the midst of all the violence, all the hurt, all of everything, when I go on social media, how inward the church has grown. You know, it's mm -hmm. all about protect us, and we want to be safe, and, you know, and, and, you know, we have that neighborhood app that everybody has across the country, and, uh, you know, in, in our neighborhood, they're, they're talking about rattlesnakes biting people in the neighborhood. Several people are hospitalized. And then some Christian lady comes on with these cute little devotional things about five times a day. And, and they, they don't fit the, the app. They don't fit anything. But it was so characteristic of uh, church looking inward. When this is a time where our country is bleeding to death and they need us more than ever. And they need us to be out there and engaged and involved. Uh, which kind of brings us to the topic, uh, and I'm going to let you two guys kind of carry it today. But, you know, we, we're, we're, we're talking about um, made for more, about trying to mobilize our people to get involved in the world around. But I'd like to start out by just hearing a little bit about the Kansas City Underground. And then maybe, Rob, you could talk about the stuff you're learning from Myron. And then, you know, I'll just leave it to you two guys. Go for it. Yeah, right on. Oh, Kansas City Underground. Uh, we're as a you know official entity. We're just a year and a half old. Although I tell people it's really at least in my life it started when I was a 14 year old and I had a crazy youth pastor who uh, grew up on the mission field and basically trained all of us to be missionaries. And our our youth ministry became this little disciple making movement inside of a very sleepy insular Baptist church that was basically thinking about themselves. Uh, he equipped all these long haired mullet wearing shredded jean wearing eighties teenagers of which I was one to go make disciples. And we you did look really great with a mullet. <laughs> oh, I've got some good pictures, bro. I, I've been in a lot of pop metal bands. It was that bad, man. And, uh, so underground really started in my heart then. Um, and then jump forward to connecting with the, this little tribe of church planners in India 
And uh, they had all had their own little networks that they had planted of churches, all micro churches, you know, but they were coming together for a vision of gospel saturation in the Southern region of India. Like they put a map on the wall and they had like, here's all every village. that doesn't have a church. We're going there, you know, and here's all the unreached people groups. We're going to train ordinary people to go up into these, you know, mountain areas and get to the tribes. And, and we went on this journey together, you know, over 15 years and it ended up being thousands upon thousands of micro churches. And they were, they were my mentors, you know, and I'm, and at the same time, I'm in this very successful mega church. Um, but I come back from India and it, my, my stomach would hurt. Cause I just go, Oh man, like we're on all the beauty pageant lists of fastest growing, most influential, but we're not even touching the surface of what's going on in India. Like that's actually the most powerful, beautiful, primal expression of the church I've ever seen. So I've just been on this long quest going, why not here? Yeah. Why not us? Anyone? I'm hoping that's why you're watching this webinar. Who's ever out there? Cause God wants to, that's not missions. It's mission. It's what Jesus wants to do everywhere, you know? And so the underground is born with that kind of ethos. Like he cut us and that's what we bleed. You know, we want, to help ordinary people recapture the fullness of their calling to get the, the maximum influence that God designed them for. And that settle for just being a volunteer a couple hours a month in a system. Uh, we want everyone to realize their birthright as a disciple maker. Um, and then if you actually live like a loving missionary and you make new disciples, what you get is a micro church emerges. So you have a new expression of the church. Um, and it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Um, it can be, and I'm for every expression of the church. Um, but that, min, you know, ecclesial minimum is an extended spiritual family led by ordinary people. They're seeking to live in everyday gospel community. So the goal is not a meeting in someone's living room. It's not the goal. Do microchurches have meetings in living rooms and lots of other places? Absolutely. The goal is penetrate lostness, make new disciples, and then live like a family on mission. And then you own the mission of Jesus in the network that he's called you to. And um, so that's what we're up to in Kansas City. We operate like a mission agency. And our mission agency equips ordinary people to do everything we just talked about. And then we have a decentralized network of microchurches. And we get them into um, little, little networks that we call collectives. And then like this guy, Paul, after the churches emerged, he would go back and lay hands on elders later we let elders emerge and then we equip them and support them and lay hands on them and recognize them. So then each network has elders that are indigenous um, to either their geography or their affinity group. And that's what we're up to. So what's cool is we were actually kind of birthed out of a prevailing model church, you know, like we were doing all this with as kind of an R and D project um, yeast in the dough and God blessed it. And then um, we all really decided together it would be best for the city to launch us out as an independent entity so it's not just a subset of one church so that we can serve the church in the city. So that's, that's uh, and our vision is we want to fill Kansas City with the beauty, justice, and good news of Jesus. Um, so it's a vision for gospel saturation in our city. And our vision is a missionary in every street and a microchurch in every network of relationships. So that's going to take about 22,000 microchurches. Um, and that's going to take about, you know, 50,000 or so missionaries. 
Um, so we're trying to build everything with that end in mind. Um, Rob, can you talk to us a little bit about, which by the way, I love hanging out with the, with the underground, Casey Underground. Um, talk to us a little bit, because this may be a little bit um, foreign, uh, maybe even uncomfortable, to talk about a, a, a model like this that I think is, is highly biblical. Um, but talk to us about the role of the mission agency. Um, and then, Ralph, could you piggyback on uh, something you've talked to me about if you're in a prevailing church? Because I heard Rob say it. It was birthed out of a prevailing church. If you're in a prevailing church, how do you not destroy the prevailing church but still emerge into a microchurch model um, of, of being a missionary, et cetera? So, Rob, you go first, and then, Ralph, could you, could you piggyback off of that? So the mission agency, uh, you know, in the made for more framework, um, that is the framework for mobilization for Expo. Um, the first shift is based out of Ephesians 1, and it's a shift from more effort to more Jesus, which sounds like a cliche until you actually read Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul drops this vision of it's the greatest vision for the church that, and it can never be improved upon. Like, I don't care what your vision statement is. If it's not connected to Ephesians one, you're missing it because in Ephesians one, he says, Jesus is all things are underneath his feet and he's filling everything every way. So Paul is saying, he's basically helping us have this sort of cosmological view of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And at the end of all things, because of the resurrection, Jesus is going to fill everything every way with all that he is. Sign me up. And then he says, the church is the fullness of him. <laughs> we're the fullness of him who's filling everything every way. In other words, we're his body. So wherever we're at, we get to manifest the fullness of Jesus, like all the love of Jesus, all the joy of Jesus, all the justice of Jesus, you know, all, all the community that comes out of the the Trinity. <clears throat> We're bringing all that culture of heaven. And so the mission agency, um, our first job is owning that, um, that vision for gospel saturation in our city. Um, like we are an advocate for that Ephesians one vision. And that's why our mission is to, to fill Kansas city with the beauty, justice, and the good news of Jesus. Like think of like Kansas city, like an aquarium. We want it full of the beauty, justice, and good news of Jesus. And we're here to serve the capital C church in all of its forms in Kansas city. Like anyone who's on board for that, anyone we're here to wash your feet. We'll help you with disciple making. We'll help you with missionary formation. We don't need credit. It doesn't have to come back to us. No one needs to know our name. We're underground, literally. We're here. So that mission agency, like we're trying to, you know, um, like give that red pill out all over the city. You know, like, come on, let's dream this dream. Let's not just dream about how many people are coming to church. That's not the dream. The dream is fill the city. The second thing that we do, and this is the second shift that's made for more, uh, and it's the shift from more volunteers to more masterpieces. So the primary framework the church, the prevailing church in the West has had for mobilization is volunteer. We're going to create a program 
And then if we're a really thoughtful church, we'll do some kind of gift assessment and try to get you in a gift-based volunteer role. Uh, and the, the, here's, the upside of that is this. Literally millions of people have been activated. And I thank God for that. Because like once you're moving, it's a lot easier. Like if a car is stopped and you have to push it, it's hard. If a car is already moving a little bit, it's like, oh, we can keep pushing it. So I'm glad people are moving, right? The dark side of it, though, is millions of Christians equate ministry with volunteerism. Like ministry and mission equals two to three hours a month in a program inside the walls of a church. No wonder we're not changing culture. Because <laughs> we're the, the mission field we're mobilizing is a program inside of a church building a lot of the times. That's a problem. And, and so we have to shift our mindset from volunteerism cannot be the end zone anymore. It can still be a part of a journey, but the end zone has to be everybody is deployed into their masterpiece mission, which is Ephesians 2.10. And it says that, we're a masterpiece and that God before the foundations of the earth was even laid, he designed a set body of good works. Like each one of us has a masterpiece mission. So we all have the master mission, go make disciples. But within that mission, there's a unique aspect of it that has your name on it. Like God designed you for it. I'm going to, Michelle and I are going to meet with two missionaries after this webinar that have been through what we call our personal discovery process. And we, we meet with, every single missionary to help them get clarity on their masterpiece mission. To whom have you been sent? Where have you been sent? What are your gifts? What are the passions God has given you? What is God, what is the story God's writing in your life? Let us help you find your masterpiece mission. So our mission agency casts that vision for gospel saturation, our city. We help ordinary people discover their masterpiece mission. And after they discover it, then we equip them. You know, so we have a startup coaching team, an ongoing coaching team. We have media services, financial services. Uh, we have help with areas of specialty like children or students. Um, and we basically launch people as missionaries into a context that they're called to, where they plant themselves, they plant the gospel, and as new disciples emerge, then a microchurch pops up from the gospel soil, that, and then we help them sustain and multiply microchurches. So that's what the mission agency does. That's cool. You know, uh, when I hear the term mission agency, it really, really rings a bell because I'm thinking of these, what I call legacy churches. Uh, we don't want to wreck them. Jesus said not to um, destroy the wineskin. Um, I'm not sure if I'm having connection or not. I'm going to just keep talking. And um, I, I've, I've lost all uh, ability to see you guys. Okay, it just came back. So, so Jesus says, we're not here to destroy the wineskin, and we don't want to destroy the wineskin. But so often what the older wineskin, the, the legacy church, is all about is self-preservation and maintenance. And quite often it comes back to money. And money comes back to numbers of people in seats. And then, of course, volunteerism is there to just protect the whole thing. And so I've been coaching some large congregations through what hopefully is perhaps not as radical as you folks, but uh, to the point where we're actually multiplying churches and we're driving multiplication deep into the culture of that church. And I'm working with a large church in Denver, Colorado, and they have really taken this on and said, we're changing the culture 
of our entire church, and they're doing it, which is like, oh my gosh, you know, at the outset, is this even possible? Because most pastors at some point flinch, and it, and, and it, and it comes down to the preservation deal. We got to preserve the wineskin. We got to keep what we have. We don't want to risk it. If you don't have senior leadership, the, the senior pastor, uh, whoever is, is is at that top level, it, total buy-in, you're just not going to get there. So, so what true. really seems so to be easier, a lot easier, and, and, and I love your terminology because if you control vocabulary, uh, then you begin to control behaviors and, and actions and, and narratives, everything that comes out of there. And every church has some sort of something that, that could be identified as a missions agency. And, and, and I haven't used that term before. I'm going to from this day forward because it's so non-threatening. Um, I, I, I worked with a couple churches that there are small groups ministry is now going to begin to multiply microchurches. But as soon as that begins to look like reality, senior leadership pulls right back. And uh, it's it's almost like uh, you you got this job. They hired you. You're gonna you're gonna work with small groups in the church, and you're gonna you're gonna turn these into micro churches and release them. Uh, that's a death wish. You're not gonna have your job 18 months from now because as soon as you start to succeed, uh, your head's on the chopping block, and 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 that you know it's understandable. Uh, I, I don't resent those people who have those issues. It's just very short sighted. Because the the real issue to me, if you're in a legacy church and you're listening to this, is that you want there to be a new wine skin that you can pour the new wine into, That's and it. you have to separate that from the maintenance mode of the old wine skin. In other words, you know, uh, if you just think of the wine skin as a metaphor, an old wine skin has value. It can hold old wine that isn't fermenting and isn't going to expand to where it breaks the wineskin. It can carry water. And some of our legacy churches, uh, it's a pretty watered-down version of the gospel, but it's still something. And But if you're, if you're going to do the new wine thing, it, it has to be done separately. Uh, it has to be done in isolation. My recommendation to people is senior leadership needs to be involved. You need to get off in a corner with people, and pretty much operate, if we're thinking in terms of computers, you know, partition your hard drive and, and run two to OS. You know, I, I had a, a, an Apple computer, but I was running, I, I partitioned the drive and I was able to run Windows software on my Apple computer. So think of it, your church is the Apple computer, but off in a corner, the, the, the lead pastor is working with whoever's responsibility this is. And five or six people is all it takes and you just get together and give the Holy Spirit breathing room. And then what you said that really uh, struck home with me was you mentioned the Apostle Paul uh, not identifying elders until the Holy Spirit had caused elders to emerge. And I see so little of that today. It's, it's usually we got to go through this training program, and then we rubber stamp your forehead. Uh, now you're one of those. And we don't really trust the Holy Spirit to, to do what he'll do because quite often it's the most unlikely people who do emerge and, and, and good things happen from there. But, you know, I, I think this is a hugely complicated issue, especially if you're in a large church with a large budget, many departments, many programs. you got to feed the monster that you build. 
but you have this incredible capacity if you're willing to recognize it to do something where we're off in the corner you begin to develop the new wineskin leadership and and give them the freedom to run uh, which brings me to um, another thing that I'd like to just introduce into this conversation I was really struck a number of years ago by a book by a guy named Ori Brofman called uh, The Starfish and the Spider. You know, starfish, you cut it in a lot of little pieces and you get a whole lot of new starfish. The spider, you cut it up dead. And so many of our churches are built on a spider model. The New Testament church, starting in Acts chapter 8, the starfish got cut into lots of little pieces and that's the reason we're sitting here today. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'd like for you to just, you know, I know you're writing a new book. Uh, it's coming out next year, I guess, called the, the Starfish and the Spirit. But, you know, introduce that a little bit into this conversation. And then let's go back to, to Myron because he asks the most penetrating questions. <laughs> Indeed he does. Um, yeah, that book was a, the year that book came out, um, I read that book in the forgotten ways at the same time. That was like, bam, bam. <laughs> and I was in the middle of this. We just got to like exponential growth in this church planning and movement in India. And it felt like, well, these two books are the Rosetta stone that are now interpreting for me what's going on and why it's going on. Um, so there are my list of, top five most influential books. And since then, um, my quest as a leader has been uh, the embodiment of the starfish, which is about decentralizing power. It's, it's about decentralizing authority. It's about empowerment and equipping and disappearing, if you know what I mean. Like people don't even know you were there. <laughs> um, because you did such a good job building capacity in indigenous people, you know, being catalytic without being codependent. Um, and so this book uh, is actually, it's a crazy story, but a friend of mine, Lance Ford, uh, ended up meeting Ori at a conference. Huh. It all comes back to a conference. It always comes back to a conference with evangelical. Well, you guys on Monday got together and conferred, but you didn't have a conference. <laughs> exactly. And they hit it off. And then Lance introduced me to Ori. And I was like a geek. Like, Ori Rothman. I love Ori Rothman. <laughs> you know? And um, we became friends. And, uh, and we were, you know, sharing regularly with Ori, like, here's how we're embodying this. And Ori's had a really interesting journey. Um, you know, I'll let him share his own story with you guys someday. That'd be really cool if he'd come on here, and I think he would. Um, but he had two kind of points of trauma as a kid, and one was from the military and one was from the church. And what's funny is he, he went out there with this message about starfish leadership. He actually got hired by the U.S. military, helped him rewrite their leadership curriculum. <laughs> So he's been working with the military and then he's like, and now I have two good friends that are evangelical pastors and, and now I'm helping them write a book. <laughs> so God's obviously at work in kind of a cool way there, you know? So basically we're taking the ideas that Ori, um, you know, he came at from really an academic point of view. He's a professor at Berkeley 
And, and he, Ori would tell you, it's like Jesus is the first historical embodiment. The church is actually the first great movement in human history that was built on this starfish form of leadership. Everything before that is hierarchical, top-down, uh, command, control, pyramids, one guy at the top, you know, everyone else underneath that person's boot. And Jesus flipped it. He flipped it. And basically what's happened is we've been so influenced because um, it's so much a part of the human psyche, this kind of top-down way of leading, um, that most churches don't operate with that starfish um, kind of um, thinking, ecosystem. I think a lot of pastors have it in their heart, but they're inside of a structure and um, in 17 years of kind of a momentum, a certain direction. And so it, the pastor ends up with this job description that's like, you're the CEO, you know, you're the professor, you're the chaplain, uh, you're supposed to know how to be the smartest guy in the room on any topic. I mean, the job description is insane. So they're exhausted. Like, it's, I can't do this. And then they're not seeing movement happen through their church. Uh, and, it, and I think for a lot of pastors, it's like, I got in this thing because I wanted to see a Jesus movement. And then, like, five years later, I'm running a machine. What happened? <laughs> you know? So our, our hope is that this book will make it super practical um, for um, leaders to build teams around this starfish DNA. And it's built around seven different starfish. Um, and each one of the starfish focuses in on a different dimension of being a starfish leader. And, um, and for me, it's kind of like all the bloody knuckles, all the bruised foreheads, all the, all the things I've learned. And it's the same thing for Lance. And then Alan Hirsch jumped in on this thing with us. So he provides commentary through the whole book. Um, and really for this hour of, uh, where the church is getting a major reset because of COVID. Um, we're really hoping this will be a great service uh, to church leaders as they're rethinking, how do I organize as a decentralized network of micro expressions of the church? And a lot of prevailing model churches are hitting that wall. It's like we tried to reorganize around better streaming of services. Oh, wait, that's not working. What do we do? Let's reorganize around small groups. That's what a lot of churches are doing right now. How do we upgrade our development of small group leaders and small group experience? And um, our book will help you go, I think, to a deeper level on that. Instead of thinking of the small group just as like a little subset for assimilation, it's what you talked about, Ralph. You can start reimagining the church as this network of micro expressions of the church. And how do you lead that? And a lot of pastors were never taught how to do that. Man, this is like drinking from a fire hydrant, man. Um, so I'm, I know a lot of people are intrigued about the whole idea of a mission agency and um, a network of micro churches and then out of a subset of collectives. Um, talk to us about what you, you have or talk a lot about um, when it comes to the missionary pathway. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that, why that matters and where uh, us as leaders can start in that pathway as well. Sure. Uh, can you guys, can you guys see it? Is it there? Yeah. Good. Um, 
So uh, this is something that um, between Mission Church and Kansas City Underground, we're always swap, swapping notes. We're like um, learning from each other. And Myron, you have your own embodiment of this. So you should share this after I finish sharing mine so they can just see another example um, that there's more than one way to do this um, and have the same posture, the same DNA. Um, this is what we use when it comes to training missionaries. So we wanted something simple that a 12-year-old could understand, uh, something that's memorable and clear, um, but also robust enough that if, like, if someone actually walked through this training pathway, they'd be an amazing missionary making new disciples and could lead a migrant church. So those are kind of the things we had in mind designing it. And this is based off of the work of guys like David Watson, who studied disciple-making movements for now four decades. Um, and it's actually become quite a area of almost, you could call empirical research. So what I'm showing you isn't like, oh, David Watson just thought of this after having coffee and donuts one morning. Like, no, this is like, we've watched this happen again and 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 again in the greatest disciple-making movements in the history of the church. So this works is what I'm trying to tell you. It's what the Holy Spirit has been doing. And so we're, it's basically what they notice is there's these five phases in a new kind of missionary endeavor in a new disciple making movement. Uh, phase one is extraordinary prayer and fasting. So with every missionary, we begin with extraordinary prayer and fasting. In other words, nobody gets to skip the upper room. Everybody has to tarry. Everyone needs the power of the Holy Spirit. Everybody can only go forward as fast as they can on their knees. And, um, and this is, has to be the undercurrent of all missionary work is extraordinary prayer and fasting. And the number one skill of any missionary is to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and then obey. So in the New Testament, they don't have a standard operating procedure that they're teaching everybody to do the same way over and over again. It's like, hey, see that guy in the chariot? Go over there. <laughs> you know, they're getting in real time instructions from the Holy Spirit. And the fire falls at your next step of obedience. Right. So we need to teach people um, how to pray. And in particular, there's two forms of prayer. One we call listening prayer. And the other one is missional prayer. So listening prayer is where David says, you know, I learned to quiet myself like a weaned child. In other words, like we tend to live in all this mind chatter and anxiety. And, and he's like, I learned how to get still and hear the voice of God. And most people have never learned how to do that. Uh, so we use, um, you know, St. Ignatius, that dude, amazing. And he developed some very simple forms of listening prayer that we teach people and helps them quiet themselves and learn to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then missional prayer is like knowing how to pray for and with people. And we have simple tools for each of these that we can teach people and we teach people how to do it. And then right away we say, you need to teach someone else how to do this. Right. And then we teach people about fasting, that fasting isn't a hunger strike. Fasting does a couple things. It gets you really focused and it uh, does things in the heavenlies. There's like this angelic partnership opens doors. Uh, and we, if you read the book of acts, for example, and start paying attention for how prominent the role of the angelic was and, and the church's commitment to prayer. And those are connected. So we basically teach every missionary uh, extraordinary prayer and fasting, help them figure out those rhythms. 
Um, the next phase is live as a missionary. So this is where you're getting crystal clarity on, um, and this is happening while you're praying, like, who am I really sent to? You can't be a good missionary in six different villages, you know? You'd be spread too thin. You got to have a primary context. So we help you figure that out. It's called missional focus. And then we teach the five missionary rhythms of begin in prayer, listen and engage, eat, serve, and story. And, and then we help you learn to look for a person of peace and settle in where the person of peace opens a door to you. Phase three is plant the gospel. Um, so if you're praying and fasting and you're living those five missionary rhythms and you find a person of peace, you will get to share the gospel. It will happen. Like the small talk will turn to significant talk, will turn to spiritual conversation. And then we teach people to plant the gospel in two different ways. One is discovery Bible study, very simple form of Bible engagement. It has a disciple-making DNA baked right into it. It's discovery-based, it's obedience-based, and it builds in reproduction and sharing. And then gospel fluency, which was developed by Tim Chester and then Jeff Vanderstelt built on it. And it teaches people, uh, there's two simple tools that teach people how to speak the gospel to themselves. And then if you learn to speak the gospel to yourself, you'll share it fluently with other people. And then phase four, if you do those first three, what happens is new disciples are made and then a microchurch emerges. So then we teach them rhythms of sustaining and then multiplying microchurches. Uh, to, and a microchurch is built around worship, community, and mission. Worship, community, and mission. So we teach them rhythms of two out, two up, two in. That's like a monthly rhythm of you know, measuring your vitals. Because in a microchurch, you have organized stuff and organic stuff. And we're saying you should really have, in terms of the organized things, two out, two up, two in. That, that, those are like vital signs. And then there's all the organic touches between that. And then phase five is multiplication. So we build in reproduction and multiplication at every level. It's about multiplying disciples, multiplying leaders, multiplying teams, multiplying microchurches, multiplying collectives, and multiplying hubs. So Myron is here on Monday because we were having conversations with um, three different groups of people about launching hubs in other parts of the city because we have a vision to multiply hubs and the hubs are the mission agency. So we want 20 or 25 of those mission agencies in our city so that every missionary and microchurch is 10 or 15 minutes from a hub that's proximate and then also contextually kind of incarnated into their part of the city. So our training pathway is we walk people through the missionary pathway, you know, and um, we have like a seven week kickstart huddle uh, that gives people an overview. Uh, we have more um, long-term training. Like we have a four month training on the blessed rhythms. So it's this combination of like informal and formal tools and training. Uh, but everything is built around helping people walk this missionary pathway. That's so powerful, man. Could you give us, um, I know there's something like 80-something missionaries, 20-something microchurches. What, what's one of, like, maybe your favorite microchurch story? Man, that's like trying to <laughs> – which one of your kids is your favorite? Like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, you know – one that just popped recently and I'm their coach. Um, so I'll just tell this one cause it's the one that popped into my head. Uh, it's this wonderful couple, John and Heather Grisham. 
Um, and he's not the famous best-selling author, by the way. They're both doctors. <laughs> <laughs> but they, uh, they're very, um, you know, they're, they're, they're a couple that they met Christ, uh, if I remember right, in college um, and really got activated with kind of a missionary mindset. But then it felt kind of weird since then, you know, like they have this really strong calling to this, um, to Algerian refugees. And, you know, it's sometimes when you're in the prevailing model and you go up to a church leader and you're like, man, I really feel called to Algerian refugees. It's, it's tough for a ch- I want to help them, but I don't want to make this like a new ministry of our church and put it in the budget. I don't know what to do, you know? And so they, they heard from a friend of a friend about the underground and we said, come on in, you know, and there, and there is a, they actually moved to this uh, Kansas city because there's a big Algerian refugee population here. So they literally moved here so they could be closer to that population. And they have some friends and they've been making friends in the Algerian refugee uh, community, but it's slow going because they're outsiders. Right. And they, they have to get cultural competency they got to build cred because they're like, what are you doing hanging out here? You know? <laughs> so it's slow going and it's been kind of discouraging. But our coaching to them is like, well, you live in a neighborhood too, right? So while you're working among the Algerian refugees, like you got to bloom where you're planted right now, you know? So they started being intentional about living in the bus rhythms in their neighborhood too. And we say you can usually straddle two contexts, you know? You can. You can, really, you can still be a pretty good missionary in two contexts. And what happened was one of their neighbors, like they went for, John and him went for a bike ride. They got done with their ride and they're chatting and got into a spiritual conversation. And he's like, this is amazing. And the end of that conversation, they were like, would you, would you want to, you know, look at Jesus' words together? And they're like, yeah, we'd be interested in that. Well, then COVID hits, right? And they get this prompting from the Holy Spirit. Hey, let's start a discovery Bible study. Like we've been living like missionaries for, you know, year or half on purpose. And we, we have some credibility. We've already had one neighbors like said, I want to have a spiritual conversation. So they wrote up this letter and they taped it to the front door of all the people they had relational credibility with. Okay. And they put, hey, we're going to meet. We're going to talk about Jesus words about fear. And we're just going to read what Jesus said and talk about it together. I'm not going to preach at you. We're going to learn together what Jesus said. And if that sounds like something you want, well, get this, the next week they had six of the families show up for a Discovery Bible study online. And they were blown away. They're like, six families? This is nuts. We're talking about Jesus, you know? And they go a couple weeks. Well, they, we trained them without a person of peace. They knew who the person of peace was in their neighborhood. So a woman just lived there 35 years, I think he said. And John was taking out his garbage. And sure enough, she was taking out her garbage. And they start talking from across the street. And near the end of the conversation, she says, are you doing that Bible thing online? Is that actually happening? He goes, yeah, we had six families sign up. She said, six families. And she's a person of peace. So she's like, if there's a party in this neighborhood, I'm going to be at it. You know? So she's like, I'm coming next week. And then she told John, I'll bring some people. She brought seven families to (laughs) 13 families doing discovery Bible study from their neighborhood, which is basically all the families that live in a, you know, in their block and a half. And so when things opened up, they started uh, meeting in person, and now they've got the rhythm of community worship and mission, and they've emerged as a new microchurch, man. 
And it's funny because they're like, we're here to reach the Algerians. And Jesus is like, there's a church in your neighborhood waiting to happen. And we'll get to the Algerians too, but start here. And I think the Lord's going to teach them things in their neighborhood that they need for the work with the Algerian refugees, you know? Um, so it, that's, and that's a very similar, that story has been, it's being played out over and over again. Like people live like they start praying and fasting. They start living those missionary rhythms. They always, eventually, if you stay at it, you get to share the gospel. And guess what? You keep sharing the gospel. Jesus will always draw people to himself. He will. And then you get a microchurch. Ralph, I'm curious as Rob is sharing, um, what stories are uh, maybe circulating in your heart and mind that, that are maybe, you know, similar that just that you're thinking about right now? A couple. Um, I, I'm involved with a church called Ocean Water that is actually 60 miles from my house. So we do most of what we do online. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm watching a, a differentiation. People are trying to take the new technology and use it to organize what was. In other words, we're trying to, to do 2019 all over again on the internet. And, and, and then I'm watching others, and, and Rob kind of mentioned it. You know, we've gone from this live, uh, live streaming to now pre-recorded video. And I always tell these guys, you know, you got 80 people in your church, and you're doing pre-recorded video, and you get better and better at it, and you're in direct competition with Andy Stanley, who can do it better than you ever will. Uh, what Andy Stanley can't do is be in communication with people in your neighborhood, and you can do that. And, and I love what Rob said about taping notes to people's doors because uh, it's so low tech. Uh, I, was, I was with a pastor the other day. I'm going, what about your phone? You know, uh, and, and, and not just my phone as an implement to go on Facebook Live, but my phone to actually call people up and say, how you doing? And, uh, you know, it's like that seems to escape people. So I'm watching a very large church that I work with in Hawaii. I'm watching a really this really small church in San Clemente, and their micro churches are just mushrooming all over the place. And so we're I think in the heart of Jesus as we're talking about these things. It's just going to take a little while before we come to some kind of a tipping point where enough people are seeing enough results. And again, the money monster is here because what Rob just talked about uh, doesn't have a really good uh, a, a, a financing channel. How, how, do, how am I going to get these people, if this is my mindset, how am I going to get these, you know, 13 families in this neighborhood to start tithing to some entity that I've created? Uh, and, and eventually... You know, we got to be thinking about money. Uh, one of my friends has been doing a microchurch forever in Honolulu. And I, I ran into him one day because we were trying to do one in Las Vegas and one in Reno. We were struggling over, you know, should we get a 501c3? How do you handle the money? And he said, you know, we just tell everybody, you open up a bank account in your name, but it belongs to Jesus, checking account. And then when Jesus tells you what to do with his money, then you do that, and, and you give it to people outside the body of Christ. And don't bring it here. We don't want your money here. That's a really viable answer to the fact that part of worship is our tithe. Uh, and, and yet we don't want to become this machine that we've built 
over the years. So I'm I'm just seeing a lot that's gone that's good. I'm seeing a lot of hesitation, which is very, very frustrating. Um, You know, I, I, I was talking to a guy today who's a marketing guy in Honolulu. And he said that, you know, he's in touch with a lot of Gen Z. And he goes, these kids are done with social media. They grew up on social media and they're flat out over it. And one of the things that's happening in Hawaii, it's a little different culture. Uh, canoe racing is a big deal. So you got like, like eight, nine people in a canoe that work as a team. And, and he goes, you got 12, 13, 14-year-old kids trying to join canoe clubs in Hawaii. And, and he goes, I asked these guys, what are you doing this for? And Well, I don't even like the ocean, but what I need is friends. And I'm so sick of the of, of everything on social media. So we're seeing this major churning going on in our culture. And it's uh, it, it's escaping most of the churches. So it's so refreshing to me. I mean, it's always refreshing to me hanging out with you, Myron. But to, di- to get to be with, um, it, it, it's just, today is just a good day, man. I, I'm very, very excited. Thanks, man. That means a lot. And I... You know, on the we get asked the money question, um, what do we do with money? And I think you're right, um, Roy. That's that's one of the governors on people wanting to go into micro or explore micro. And basically, what we've done, um, those of us that are serving the underground, like my wife and I, we went in raised support, and. Um, that was the first time we've done that. We've taken a salary from the church, pretty much our whole adult lives. Um, and this support raising journey has been amazing in terms of our own faith growing. Um, and then the way it's intersected the people that we've invited to be on our support team has been really amazing. It's been very catalytic for their own faith. And what's happened is it's created a lot of credibility because all the money that comes into the underground, um, we have 100% financial transparency. So like you can look at any of the books anytime. We're not hiding anything. And when people really discover, it's like, Rob and Michelle don't even take a penny. It's like Paul. I mean, I can literally say to him, hey, I worked among you and I didn't take a cent from you. And, and that's so you know what my motives are. And so I know that's scary because I was a guy, I mean, you better believe a couple years ago, I was like, whoo, Lord, you want us to do what? And how are we going to pay the bills? <laughs> you know, it's like, speaking to her. It's like, wow. But here's the thing. What we do, Ralph, is um, when, when people sign a missionary commitment, part of the missionary commitment is a financial commitment. If you're a missionary, you need to honor God with every area of your life. Right? And, and because we're doing it relationally, like people know. Like I tied to the underground. And then above and beyond that, I'm spending money every month in my neighborhood, you know, in our microchurch. And the month before last, it was like a thousand bucks. Now, I'm not mm. saying that to brag. I'm just saying, like, we're giving. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and when people, like, here's the, let me just finish this last thought. So here's what happens is um, we've been blown away by the generosity in the underground. Like, the, the amount of, um, ties that are coming in through the microchurches is totally exceeded our expectation. And so I guess what I want to offer is a word of hope that um, 
like I've helped plan a lot of traditional churches over the years. You guys both know that. I mean, I work a day a week for new thing and I totally believe in that model. Like our numbers um, exceed what a traditional church plant does in the first year. So it, you know, the I want to bring something into this. Um, you, you mentioned several times the word hub and we've kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, I, when I wrote the book, uh, Mega Multi Multiply for Exponential, I was of the impression that you could you could do serial microchurch planting, just you know, plant one after another after another after another. I came to the realization that you got to have a hub. There has to be some something that's a locus that's that's, that's pressing this outward, or it's just not going to happen. And so, you know, Ralph, can I put? Let me insert one thought in there of total agreement. I heard from, you know, Alex Absalon. So he was involved yeah. with 3DM um, yeah. and he's been doing micro for like 30 years. He told me one time, this is probably a decade ago. He's like, you're going to see a pattern and people get to like three or so micro churches and then it stops. Yeah. It's like yeah. the natural state of things. And then what happens is like, you start losing one or two of those micro churches and, and the difference is what you said when you add the hub you add the mission agency, it's like a force multiplier, you know? Yes. So, so, then, so then we come to a, a, an issue because on the, on the one hand, I'm all excited about we can do a microchurch and we just get all the money away. But I'm also a retired person who's got income I don't have to worry about. Um, I, I'm worried about sustainability. If, 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 if everybody who's listening to us decides we're going to go out there and raise support, what we're really going to do is we're going to go to the legacy churches and ask people who are part of the legacy church to support us. And eventually those people are going to grow old and die. At some point we, we now counterpoint to what I said five minutes ago, we're going to have to instruct the people inside the micro churches to begin to direct support, particularly to key personnel who are driving this thing in the hubs. And and that that to me is a is is something that's yet to be unraveled. I I wish I could come along here with pearls of wisdom, but I don't have any. Uh, it, it's like I I don't know how we get from here to there. Uh, we were discussing this in in a church that I'm really involved with about a week ago tomorrow, and uh, one one guy said, you know, we're going to lose all credibility. We we are credible now because our leader is raising support. But as soon as we start asking people who are new in the Lord to direct support to this guy. We're going to have to deal with that because to me, uh, and, and back to the starfish and the spider deal, we are supposed to be infinitely reproducible and infinitely sustainable. And, and those two words, reproduction and sustainability, are, are, are have to figure into this financial discussion. And, I, you know, you probably have some insight because you're living it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an old has-been. Uh, you're right there on the front line. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, like you said, on being infinitely reproducible, um, you know, what we're doing with microchurch is it's cheap. <laughs> well, it's cheap. It's, it's reproducible. What, yeah. what I'm saying but is what's not infinitely sustainable and reproducible is a model that we already support because eventually the support base, if we don't, if we don't figure out how to bring 
the microchurch yes. members into the the realm of the support base we're going to be left uh pirating money actually in a way from the legacy churches yeah you know, i'm tracking with you so why we're we have a we have a three-pronged strategy one is giving from the micro churches okay and uh the giving from the micro churches um ralph in year one was like hundred ninety thousand dollars that's a lot of money Right. So we, although our staff all raise support, we could have paid some staff people, you know. Now, but secondly, the idealism of that we only raise support outside. Somehow we got we got to end up crossing that bridge back to where we can direct this, particularly if we're going to create new hubs. So maybe existing micro churches are directing support to personnel and new hubs. The, those those issues, those bridges have to cross. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're not against that. Like we basically said the first three years we're going to raise our support because we don't know what this new financial model is going to be like, right? right. Um, but uh, so far, the data for the first year and a half has been very encouraging. Like our hub could support staff, right? So internal giving from the microchurches is one stream. Um, another one is, and this is where we're learning from Myron, uh, we want to put for-profit businesses in all of our hubs, and then we want to have like a chamber of commerce of businesses in our city um, that are doing business as mission. And part of their bottom line is supporting the microchurch movement in the city. And we're building this little coalition of um, business guys and gals in our city that have this passion and we're um, trying to learn everything we can from Myron because they're up to what, 32 businesses you guys have started, bro? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's going to be a huge part of what we want to do moving forward. And then the third part is actually support raising. Like, I don't think that ever needs to go away. Um, I think there's always going to be people of means that want to invest in kingdom endeavors. Um, and we, And so far, based off of our year and a half, we think – the combination of those three is going to be able to get the job done. That's pretty good. So um, this is this is a, just an amazing conversation. I want to invite um, all of our audience members to to visit um, the Casey Underground. Go to caseyunderground.org. Uh, be sure to check out on Amazon on pre-order right now the Starfish and the and the Spirit. You do not want to miss that book um rob thank you so much bro like it was so fun to hang out with you always fun to hang out with my papa my spiritual papa uh, ralph uh, with all those nuggets of wisdom and uh finally we just want to let everybody know that we have uh, some roundtables coming up this fall um, that's going to be pretty dope. Right now, there's a special price rate of 29 bucks. If you go to multiplication.org slash roundtables, you're going to hear from tons and tons of leaders, Ephraim, Spri uh, Ephraim Smith, Brian Loritz, uh, myself, obviously, uh, Urban D out of Florida. I think Rob might be on there. I don't know. He's there somewhere. If he's not, he's invisible. He he's, they'll add him later. Um, but it's going to be a completely amazing conversation around race, justice, unity, diversity. Sent Marshall from the from the Dallas Mavericks, uh, all kind of leaders that are going to be addressing this. Uh, cities from around the country 
um, are hosting these sites. So you don't want to mi miss it right now. Early bird rate, sign up, get it cracking. Um, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much for joining us. And like always, Rob, thanks, man. I appreciate you, brother. Hey, back at you. And one last thought. There was a question from the audience about could the hub you're talking about be uh, organized inside of a legacy church? I believe it could be. I think if you had the yeah. right leader and the right leadership team that was willing to do what Ralph talked about, like we can run two OSs and we'll have a partition and there will be freedom there, but it could be connected. Um, it's like modalic and sodalic is what, you know, the missiological language. So I just wanted to say to that person, yes, keep dreaming that dream. It's good. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer -peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.